Well, another Vermont summer is winding down, and the fall is practically upon us. For many of us, that means change, lots of change. The daily rhythms of life are all about to shift. School starts next week, this week for some of us. Lots of adjustments for kids, lots of adjustments for parents. Next Sunday, as you heard, we'll be starting up foundations classes and course seminars again. Home groups are right around the corner. If you're on this RGC distribution list, you just got a survey asking you about your preferred night. Fall sports are signed up for. The cleats and shin guards are purchased. And many of us, I feel, are probably scurrying around right now getting ready for the plunge. All in all, this transition back into the fall can be a little frenetic, a little stressful. There's even a degree of uncertainty. What's it going to look like once it all gets going? We don't know yet. That's right. We don't know yet. But what do we know? We know that God has good things in store for his children in this upcoming year. So BJ asked me what I wanted to preach this week, and it came into my mind that as we approach this new year, it would be good to let God's word remind us of some basics. What ought we, as God's children, to be giving ourselves to this year? Every one of us has 168 hours in a week, and we're going to have to decide how to spend them. What should we pursue? To answer this question, I submit to you this list, which you can find on the gray insert in your bulletins. A list of seven things, seven basic good things that God calls you and calls me to be engaged in this year. And why does he call us to them? Because these things will promote your own soul's welfare and will promote the building up of Christ's church. So let's get right into them. The first first thing that the Lord would have our hearts engaged in this year is that we might receive the word of God with eagerness. Now we see this principle played out in Acts chapter 17. All these different points are going to have some pithy thing. Either, either they're the punchy point of a particular story or, or one, of the, uh, one of the apostles gives just a punchy exhortation somewhere in the epistles. They're all connected uh, to these kind of simple, basic ideas. Well, in Acts 17, Paul was on his missionary journey in Macedonia. He'd had a rough, a rough reception in some of those towns, Thessalonica, um, and he, was, he got kicked out after only three weeks. And then he comes to Berea. When he comes to Berea, things change a little. They get different. And Acts 17.11 says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now notice two things that mark these folks from Berea as noble-minded. Number one, as Paul preached, they received. They received the word of the gospel with great eagerness. But they also, they also, notice, dove into their Bibles themselves. 
So every day, Paul was seeking to persuade them that God's salvation has come in Jesus the Messiah. And every day, the Bereans listened eagerly. But then they would search through the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets to make sure that what they heard from Paul lined up with what they knew to be true from God's word. And as they did that and they saw that it was the same, many of them believed, Luke records. So friends, let's have that kind of a mindset this year. That same eagerness to receive the word. Let the Bereans, for instance, be an example to you as you come to the preached word on Sunday mornings. Come to the church every week eager to listen. Eager to hear from the Lord. So when the preacher steps up to the pulpit, whoever it is, be ready. Be Be actually ready, because God Almighty has something to say to you. Something that's going to be profitable for you. Something that has the power to bring life to your soul, if you'll receive it with faith. Then don't let's be content only with Sunday morning. There's lots of opportunities to take in the Word. Home groups, for instance, they provide you an opportunity to dig into the scriptures alongside another, a group of other Christians. You get to talk things over in the group, bring your questions, your ideas, wrestle with all the challenging bits, be helped by the insight of others. And in this way, we're building one another up by engaging one another in God's word. Teens, you get to do a very similar thing, right, at, at youth group? And there'll be lots of other opportunities that'll come over the course of the year. BJL is going to outline some of them as we get into the, uh, uh, the congregational meeting. Lots of opportunities to take in the word. But we might as well talk frankly. Because I know you are not going to be too excited about any of these gospel opportunities if you just plain aren't all that eager for God's word at all. If you don't have an appetite for the Bible and you're not doing anything to cultivate your appetite for the Bible, then how do you expect to make any significant progress in your spiritual life? You won't. You can't grow without food. And God's word is that which man lives by. Now, if that sounds like I'm describing your experience... No appetite for the word of God. Then I submit that you have some repenting to do. You have some repenting to do. But listen to this. There's good news. If you have some desire to repent, if you at least want to want God's word, or if you have some appetite but you just want even more, then listen to these words from Psalm 19. The psalmist says, More to be desired are they. than the words of the Lord. More to be desired are the words of the Lord than gold. Even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What it means is that God isn't calling you to develop a taste for something foul. He's not calling you to love the taste of rancid meat or rotting fruit. No, he wants to satisfy you with that which is sweet and good. He's calling you to love the taste of honey when he gives you uh, his word. He wants you to love his word, which is good and pleasant and altogether delicious. 
But why is the word so good? Why is it that good? And why is it so important that we give ourselves to receiving it with eagerness? It's because we want to know Jesus. We want to know more and more and more of Jesus. Because Jesus is the most wonderful, the most worthy, the most gloriously lovely person that ever was or ever will be. And he's revealed to us in the pages of this book. So we want to know the Bible because we want to know Jesus. So friends, this year, let us give ourselves to the study of God's word. Number two, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, let us engage our hearts this year in prayer. Allow me to give you two suggestions. Number one, consider the content of your prayers. Maybe your prayer life is a, is a little, needs a little work. Consider the content of what you're actually asking God for. Now, when we look to the example of Jesus and the apostles, we notice something interesting. We notice that they're fairly single-minded when it comes to prayer. For the most part, they're praying for their own salvation and for the salvation of others. And friends, let's, let's you and me move in that direction. Often our prayers, I think, can have much, much more to do with the things of this world and of this life, which God cares about, but it's not ultimate. And the apostles don't think it's ultimate. Pray for yourself for your own salvation. You say, but I'm in, I'm in Christ. I've already been saved. Oh, wonderful. That's great. But you're not done yet, are you? You were saved when you believed, but you're still what? You're still being saved over time as the Holy Spirit renews you after the likeness of Jesus. And you still hope to be saved in the future as the Lord keeps you by his grace and holds you fast and protects you and preserves you until the very end. And you even look to be saved on the last day when Jesus will raise you from the dead and bring you to be with himself forever, holy and blameless and happy like he is. So pray for yourself that God would bring more and more of his salvation to be at work in your life. These are kingdom prayers. That's why I asked us to pray the Lord's Prayer again. They're they're fundamentally heavenly-oriented prayers that we're to pray for ourselves and to pray for the salvation of others. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's praying for unbelievers to be converted. To pray for the advance of the gospel. It's prayers for other believers to grow in holiness and power. Pray salvation prayers. Then secondly, pray specifically if in any way you're finding that things are stagnant right now. Maybe you're just feeling stuck. I submit to you, could it be that that's just just because you're not praying? Remember, the Apostle James told us that we have not because we, what? Ask not. We have not because we ask not. And God does not always obligate himself to give us the things that we don't ask for. He can withhold blessings knowing that we have never asked him for them. 
Now, there can be other factors at play, I understand. But oughtn't we to ask the question, am I stuck? Am I stagnant because I'm not asking? If you're stuck in sin, you can't break free from a particular besetting temptation. Might it be that you're not seeing progress because you're not praying for progress? If you're stuck in emotional turmoil, unhelpful emotional patterns which leaves you anxious, could it be, could it be that you're not taking much advantage of the help that Jesus offers you, that in everything, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the, the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now that's not a simplistic promise. That's not a simplistic promise. The Bible's not just rubber stamping, but it is a promise that ties our prayers to having our anxieties be replaced by peace. What if you're just in a place where you're stuck in neutral spiritually? You feel like you're treading water and you're seemingly unable to make any headway. Is it possible that you're languishing like this because you are not praying? Maybe you're an unbeliever and you're unsure of what it is that's keeping you from Jesus. You say to me, I don't know what to do. Well, I I might have lots of questions for you if you were to come to me like that. But one of my first would be, well, Jesus asks you to ask and seek and knock. Are you doing this? Are you asking him for your salvation to reveal his son to you? So friends, in this upcoming year, let's not forget the basics. Let us give ourselves to prayer. Because Jesus sits upon a throne of grace. And he has mercy and grace to help in time of need. And we need, we need. Number three, love one another. Love one another earnestly from the heart. That's a good basic thing. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly or fervently from a pure heart. No polite, arm's-length affection to be found in Jesus' church, at least not ideally. So I appeal to you, dear ones, open your hearts. Open your hearts to your brothers and sisters here at Redeeming Grace. Do not keep yourself to yourself. Let it be your desire increasingly this year to know and be known, to love and be loved. Some of you have a tendency to hold yourselves somewhat in reserve. You may be wary of what deeper intimacy with the saints might mean. It's vulnerable to be known. Or you may just prefer not to expend the energy that it would take to build relationships. Or there may be other reasons. By the way, I'm not talking about the difference between extroversion and introversion. This isn't about the natural personality that God's gifted you with. I've known extroverts, for instance, who can easily keep people at arm's length and use their extroversion and their friendliness to do so. And I've known many introverts who are intent 
and passionate about building deep and real connection with their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not about personality. Don't think I'm just calling us all to be more talkative. What we need is fervent, earnest, patient love. I trust you understand that difference. Now, if you are one of those folks who would really just prefer to stay on the fringes and keep your walls up and avoid any kind of intimacy, and now I'm specifically speaking to those of you who might fit that bill who profess faith in Jesus Christ, can I give you a thought experiment? I want you to think about your brothers and sisters here in our congregation. Look around if you need to. If you're in the front row, that's hard. Now look forward ahead in time. What do you imagine the nature of your relationships with those people will be like when you're with those dear folks in heaven? You know, Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon that was called Heaven, a World of Love. Heaven is a world of love. This is what he said. There shall be nothing in heaven to keep its inhabitants at a distance from each other or to hinder their most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. There shall be no wall of separation in heaven to keep the saints asunder, for they shall all be together as one family in their heavenly Father's house. Nor shall there be any want of full acquaintance, full knowledge, to hinder the greatest possible intimacy. And much less shall there be misunderstanding between them, or misinterpreting things that are said or done by each other. There shall be no disunion through difference of temper or manners or circumstances or from various opinions or interests or feelings or alliances, but all shall be united in the same interests and all alike allied to the same Savior and all employed in the same business, glorifying and serving that same God. Now, the language is old, but I hope you get the meaning. In heaven... There will be nothing to hinder or keep you apart from love to your brothers and sisters. There will be not one moment of holding back of fellowship between you and them. And therefore, I'm convinced that we ought to be doing everything that we can right now in this world, in this time, to practice, to practice for that world of love that is to come. That means we ought to be practicing fervent, sincere love now. How strange would it be for us to keep ourselves to ourselves, not let anyone in, not seek to be in with others, and then suddenly have find ourselves in heaven and find such a such an incredible like gear shift as suddenly our hearts are transformed so that we have intimate fellowship with no bars. No, let's be getting ready now for that. Let's be opening our hearts. Paul says to the Corinthians, open up your hearts to me. So why would you seek to hold yourself apart from your brothers and sisters? Won't you consider opening yourself up to enjoy deeper relationships with your fellow believers? Maybe you, maybe you seem disconnected. Maybe you just feel disconnected from the body and from the saints. Well, you've got a couple of options. You've got a couple options. You can either decide that since other people have an obligation to reach out to you, 
You're just going to wait for them to do so. And you'll resent it if they don't. That's one option you have. Decide that everyone else has the obligation to reach out to you, and so you'll just stay put and wait. It's not going to go well, guys. That is an option, not a good one. The other option is that you can decide that you're going to take the steps necessary to engage others and that you'll be the one to reach out, even if it's difficult, even if it's challenging. I'm going to offer one piece of practical advice. It's not original to me. It comes from Kevin DeYoung, who's an author and pastor out in the Midwest. He calls it the Plus One Program. DeYoung suggests that at a minimum, if you're feeling disconnected, he suggests that at a minimum, that you totally commit to faithfully attending Sunday morning worship. He says, don't let anything keep you from the gathering of God's people for worship. Commit right now that Sunday morning is immovable unless you're providentially hindered. You go to church, period. Now, now, add one more thing. In addition to the Sunday morning worship service, pick one thing in the life of your congregation and be very committed to it. Then I'll add as my own caveat, if you say, well, I'm I'm already committed to X in addition to Sunday morning, then great. Add one more thing to that and be very committed to it. Participate in these things consistently. Be fully engaged when you go. And I submit to you, if you, that you will commit to embarking on a program like this, your connection with your brothers and sisters will strengthen. Your ties of affections will grow. Your elders would submit that the one thing, aside from Sunday morning worship, the first one ought to be home groups. Because that's where Bible study, fellowship, the first line of defense for shepherding happens. But you may be already committed to home group, you feel, still feel disconnected, maybe one other thing, maybe one other thing that you're going to commit to fully engaging in. Watch your affection grow. This takes intentionality. It takes conversing with other people. It does. It takes conversation. It takes time. It's not efficient. It's not very productive in some senses of that word, but it is love. It is love. And why? Why should you and I give ourselves to loving one another earnestly from the heart? I hope that's simple to answer. It's because Jesus first loved you. He opened up his heart wide to you. He offered himself up on the cross for your sake and he says to you, love one another as I have loved you. Alright, number four. Be ready for every good deed. Be ready for every good deed. Titus 3 verse 1. He reminds, he tells Titus, remind them to be ready for every good deed. Here, I think Paul is talking about practical service and especially service to meet the needs of others. So let me ask you, in your mentality, when you think of of RGC and all that goes on, 
Is your mentality that there's a whole lot of folks here to do things, and if something's really needed, then someone will come and ask you? Is that your mindset? Or is it your mindset to be ready, to be looking for ways to help, even to ask, how can I help or offer? I see this need. Can I be the one to meet it? I asked Pastor BJ what he would say if someone just came to him and said simply, BJ, what can I do to help? You want to know what some of the answers he gave me were? He said, I'd ask them to find one of the kids in the church that likes to fish and take them fishing and connect with them. Now, if you're not a fisherman, obviously substitute whatever. But connect with one of the kids in the church by doing something that interests them and that they care about. Here's another one. BJ said, I'd ask them to reach out to a person that's kind of on the sidelines and see if they'd be interested in getting together once a week just to read the Bible and pray together. That's how he said would be some awesome ways to help. I like those answers. Here were a few I came up with. If you ask me, Brad, what can I do to help, I'd say a couple things, depending I'd say, would you check in with our widows and see if there's anything that they need done around the house and take care of it if you can? I'd say, tell Dean Gagnon, who's our head deacon, that you want to be on his speed dial if he becomes aware of work that needs to be done around the property or if he hears of some practical need that is arising within the congregation. Tell Dean you want to be high up on that call list. I'd say this. I'd say, would you think about how you might connect me with some of your non-Christian friends so that I can get to know them too, so that you and I can work together to talk to them about Jesus? Help me connect with other people. I think most of all, though, I'd say, please be willing to be asked, which, of course, doesn't mean that you have to say yes to everything. It can't mean that, obviously, but it means you're happy to be asked. You're not annoyed when asked, even if it doesn't work out and you have to say no. It means having a heart that is eager to do good for others. You know who's exemplary at that? Stephen Rachel Owens. And praise God, they've gone to do that happy work over at Bread of Life Church in Plattsburgh, Who will the Lord raise up in their place among us to do that kind of work? The Owens are not irreplaceable. No one is. They're just very dear to us, aren't they? And partly because they are ready for every good deed. And I trust and hope that that same spirit will spread extensively among us, that we'll be on the balls of our feet, ready to do what is good. As we face this new year, why ought we to give ourselves to good deeds? Well, it's because Jesus, our Savior, came, why? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want to follow in his footsteps, don't we? Let us be ready to do so.
Number five, make others welcome. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says to the church, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. I think there are implications of this for the practice of hospitality among us. Now, when we think of hospitality, we automatically think of having people over to the house, probably for a meal, right? But hospitality is actually a lot broader than that. It involves our attitudes. Hospitality means welcoming other people to ourselves. Welcome. You're welcome to me. Accepting others, especially those who are different from ourselves, seeking to put them at ease such that they feel at home with us and not far off from us. Now, of course you can practice that at your house, but it's not limited to that. There's a lot of welcoming that is done, for instance, right here on a Sunday morning. For instance, kindly and thoughtfully engaging with visitors. That's one way you make someone else at home. You welcome them. I'll tell you how I found some of this out the hard way. When I was a young man, and those of you who knew me when I was a young man, you can, you can check, you can tell other people about all the stories that you have. When I was a young man, I was taught that one of the best ways to engage with people that I didn't know was to ask questions. Ask questions, and then I could get to know them. Well, I liked that idea. I wanted to get to know people. I wanted to build relations with them, hopefully for the sake of the gospel. So I was bound and determined that I would ask questions. And boy, did I ask a lot of questions. Whenever I would see someone new at church, for instance, I would introduce myself and I'd start asking a whole string of questions. But something odd happened. Sometimes the people I was talking to didn't seem put at ease. In fact, I seemed to be making some of them uncomfortable. I couldn't figure out why. One person, as we were talking, gave me this funny look and said, I'm feeling a little bit like this is an inquisition. (laughs) Thankfully, that was an old friend I was reconnecting with. But still, it was uncomfortable. I had to learn that despite my mostly good intentions, I was not actually making people feel welcome. I was making them feel harassed. I was essentially dominating the conversation with my inquisitiveness. And besides that, I wasn't revealing anything about myself. And so the other person wound up a little uncomfortable because at the end of the conversation, I'd learned quite a bit about them, but they hadn't learned anything about me. And that's a little awkward because now there's just this knowledge imbalance So I had to go to wise and godly mentors, and they helped straighten me out. They helped me see that my own tendency was to go too deep, too fast. And sometimes welcoming others actually means slowing down and letting the relationship unfold naturally at a slower pace. You know, one kind of welcome that's related to this that might surprise you is small talk. Chit-chat. Now, some of us are suspicious of small talk. Some of us even despise it, think it's a total waste of time. But do you realize how often small talk has an ability to set another person at ease 
and communicate to them, hey, listen, I'm happy just to be talking to you. You belong here. We're just connecting. And that just allows the relational gears to get oiled a little bit more, allows time for the relationship to develop, talking about football. Now, we don't want to stop there and only ever talk about football, but as we're seeking to build intimacy with one another and with outsiders, let's not despise casual conversation, which can really be helpful to get things going relationally. We're welcoming one another. We're setting people at ease. Just something to think about for those of us who can be, if you will, a little over-intentional. Like me. But as I exhort us to give ourselves this year to welcoming others, I will say just a little bit more about what we think of as the conventional side of hospitality, having others over so that gospel relationships can develop. Because that is really important. Let's just acknowledge, first off, that there are some real practical impediments for some of us to hosting. You might have, for instance, a very small place, not easy to host at your place. You might have limited means to prepare a meal. You might feel really uncomfortable if things aren't very neat and tidy before people come over. Any takers on any of those things? Let me encourage you not to forgo the blessing of welcoming your brothers and sisters and non-Christians too when there are ways to get creative. For one, number one, it can be helpful for us to just lower our expectations. Let me ask, does the meal have to be home-cooked for people to feel welcome? No. Do you know, I once heard a seminary professor's wife say to the young ladies of the seminary, the wives of the seminary students, never bring a ready-made meal when you're giving someone for a, 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 for a baby, like after someone's had a baby. You have to make it home, home cooked. I was like, what? What are you talking about? That raises, that raises the bar for absolutely unnecessarily. The meal does not have to be home cooked. Pizza from Domino's is just fine. Number two, does the house need to be spotless for people to feel welcome? No. And if they have little kids, the spotlessness of the house may feel, let, make them feel a little less than welcome. Can there be all the appearance that your home is actually lived in by real people and people still feel welcome at your house? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I want to take a moment to honor my dear wife in this. Elisa does this marvelously. She used to find it quite stressful if we were having guests and the house was somewhat lived in. But she so values people for Jesus' sake, and she's really to the place where she can step over most of that. Now, she still prefers that we don't have Legos all over the floor and a whole counter full of dirty dishes. Nothing wrong with that. But she's been saying to me recently, Honey, I want to think through a few meals that we can just throw together in a flash so we can invite people over spontaneously after church on Sunday and we don't need to have advanced planning. We don't need to have advanced notice. See, I love that. I love you. Her heart is to welcome others for the glory of God. 
Love that. You know, when I was a freshman in college, the first couple of months I was visiting different churches before I settled down to attend one particular church. Do you know what I found? At many of the churches I visited, someone would invite me over for Sunday lunch. It wasn't anything fancy either, just around their kitchen table. Whatever they might have had for leftovers in the fridge sometimes. But that meant so much to me as a 17-year-old homesick kid. Now I wonder, I wonder, without binding anyone's consciences, I wonder if we at RGC couldn't stand to grow a little bit. And that we wouldn't profit if we had a little bit more of a culture of having folks over for Sunday lunch. Having one another in our homes to bless and encourage one another with our fellowship. With low expectations for how nice it has to be. Because we care about the people. Talk over how we profited from the worship service. I think it would be lovely, for instance, if a visitor to our church would have a hard time getting out the door without receiving at least one invitation to lunch. I think that would be sweet. Now, again, there are, other, there are even more other creative ways to show hospitality. It doesn't have to be in your home, for instance. What about inviting folks to have lunch at a local park? We've done that. What about in the foundations room? You could have lunch with someone in the foundations room. You could invite folks to McDonald's. You know, we've even got some picnic tables out by the playground now. That could work for an impromptu bite to eat after church, and the kids can play while the adults talk. And I'm not just talking about Sunday morning, but that's just, that's just an idea. Let's be thinking creatively. I sometimes got bizarrely creative. If you don't have the space for yourself, you can even invite yourselves over to a brother or sister's house and offer to provide all the food. They can provide the space, you provide the food. I used to invite myself over to Thanksgiving dinners with people. I was, I'm a little weird. I'm a little weird. And it's not because my mother wouldn't have had me. Now, why? Why do we need to be willing to think outside the box to show hospitality to make others welcome? Again, we go back to the gospel. Romans 15, 7. Christ has welcomed us into his home, into his family, into his heart for the glory of God. Do we not desire to do the same for others? All right, number six, be prepared always for witness. You know, as the fall comes and all of its new rhythms, it means that some of us have had the privilege or are about to have the privilege of meeting new people that you're actually going to rub shoulders with on a bit of a regular basis. I'll give you one example. Isaiah, my son, and Caleb Munger are on a Georgia soccer team together. And their first practice was this Thursday. One of the boys on the team is a neighbor of the Stotons, and he's even in, in, uh, they've even invited them to Awana, and they came once, which is really cool. One of the other boys' dads I know slightly through Little League. Other than that, the coach, the other kids, the parents, I don't know them at all. So as often as I can, I'm just going to try and I'm going to try and stay for the practices, so that I can try and connect with the parents. So at the end of the first practice, Isaiah and Caleb and I sat in the van and we prayed. We just prayed for the other boys, for their families, that we might have an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. Maybe invite them to Awana. I don't know. See, it's not an accident 
that my son is on this particular team. That is not an accident. God ordained that. Why? Can it not be that it might be for one of their eternal good? What am I going to do with that opportunity? You might be in a similar situation. You might have new contacts at work or at school. You kids, you are about to enter into totally new classrooms with whole different bunches of kids. Maybe community life, you're seeing and meeting new people. Are you thinking about how to leverage those relationships for the gospel's sake? Those folks that you've just met, one day they will bow their knee to Jesus Christ and their tongue will confess that he is Lord. That will inevitably happen. Might God use you to help them to a saving knowledge of him now? So maybe you just met someone this past week. Is it possible that in two years' time, we could be baptizing them and welcoming them into the family of God? Are we at least thinking along those lines? Praying along those lines? A few practical suggestions. As you meet people that you're going to be coming into regular contact with, I'd suggest that you identify with Christ quickly. Kids, I'd encourage you again to do this at school also. Somehow bring up the fact that you believe in Jesus or that you attend Redeeming Grace Church or that you're a Christian. Bring it up early with new friends and workmates and schoolmates and acquaintances. Don't be showy or dramatic, but be willing to modestly show your colors early. Show your colors soon. And that has several benefits. It gets you in a frame of mind to witness for Jesus. It ought to help you live rightly before others since you've already identified yourself with Jesus and you want to bring honor to his name with your conduct. It also gently puts your new acquaintance on notice that you're a Jesus person they might reasonably expect to hear more about that as your relationship develops. Maybe that'll lead to instant rejection. So be it. Let's be identifying with Christ quickly. Another suggestion. Notwithstanding the mistakes of my youth, do ask questions. People like to talk about themselves. Sometimes they never ask, if you ever notice, they never ask you a question in return. They just are happy to continue to talk about themselves. So be truly interested in people and be interested in what they're interested in. When you show genuine interest, that helps to build real connection with people. Because as you get to know and you get to value them, and they hopefully get to know and value you, that now provides a context in which you can share the thing that's of most importance to you, that's most precious to you, the reality that sinners like you and like them can have eternal life because of Jesus Christ. And then a third suggestion. I would suggest be ready to share your salvation testimony in just a few minutes. I tell you, this has been one of the most effective ways I've been able to share the gospel over the years. Don't give an exhaustive account of your whole life story starting, I was born. But explain the gospel and use the details of your life as the illustrations. What your life was like before you came to Christ, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and when you were under the judgment of God. 
how you came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross and rose again to pay the payment for your sin. And then how your life has changed since you began to follow him before Christ, knowing Christ, since Christ. BJ and I are dreaming and scheming about having a seminar this year about how to prepare your salvation testimony in like three to five minutes so that you can use it to share the gospel with someone in a brief conversation. Hope that might be interesting for some of you. Well, friends, again, why? Why should we give ourselves to witness this year? It's so that others might know this same Jesus who has rescued us from our sins and can rescue them also. These things are not easy. These things are not easy. But neither are they complicated. They're basic, good things. They're not designed to fill your plate to the chock full. They're not tasks, if you will. They're things and rhythms to be engaged in day in and day out. They'll build your faith. They'll promote Christ's kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, will you consider how to build them into your rhythms and routines in this coming year? And now, let's consider the final item on my list. An item specifically included for those of you who are not yet believers in Jesus. What would God call you to give yourself to in this upcoming year? I think the answer is found in Isaiah 55, 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let this wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord for he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon My non-Christian friends, you really have one job which must take priority over every other matter in your life. You must seek the Lord. You have nothing else that is of eternal importance over the well-being of your immortal soul. You have no other relationship that is of greater importance than your relationship with the God of heaven. But right now, you and he are actually at odds. No, that's not strong enough. You and he are enemies of one another because you will not submit to his authority. Even though he created you, even though he provides for you every single day, even though he sustains you in every breath you take in, out, that's his grace every beat of your heart. And you either ignore him or you pretend he isn't there or you dislike him or you're offended at him or else you are as yet just unwilling that he should have authority over you. But you really can't escape his authority Because he's put within you a conscience which tells you that he is real. Which tells you that he made you and that he is powerful and that he is good. And that conscience also tells you that you are not good. That your life fails to live up to the standards of goodness that you know that God has put in place. 
Friends, this means that you know you are a sinner. And to use Isaiah's language, you are, in fact, wicked and unrighteous. And you know, you know that God will hold you to an account. That he will declare you guilty and you will not be able to contradict him. And the scriptures say that for your unrighteousness, the sentence for that is eternal death. But this passage in Isaiah offers you a wonderful solution, which is available for you to take advantage of right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and he may still be found today. So forsake your way, forsake your thoughts, and return to the Lord. Which, in other words, that means repent. Agree with him that you're a rebel and a sinner, and ask him to have compassion on you. And the promise is that he will have compassion, that he will pardon you. Because Jesus Christ, his sinless son, died on the cross for sinners just like you. And everyone who will go to God through Jesus Christ, trusting in his sacrifice as a payment for their sins, everyone who does that will find mercy. Seek the Lord. While he may be found, he may be found today. Jesus is a savior able to save you. He is a savior willing to save you. Don't overthink it. Don't overthink it. Don't wonder too much if you feel your sin deeply enough or if your faith in Jesus is quite as strong as it ought to be or if you know exactly what it will look like for you to follow Jesus. Those questions will keep. They'll keep for later. Right now, seek the Lord while he may be found. Do not let him go until he blesses you. Call upon him while he is near. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and Jesus will open the door to you. This has to be your top priority right now. And nothing else really comes close. So if you're not in Christ, I appeal to you, give yourself this year to seeking the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, our Father in heaven, so, so good things, so much good in these exhortations from the apostles. So many good things for us to be about your business. And we pray, Lord, that, that we would have this as our general mentality. To have these things be the things that fill, our, fill the mind and the heart first. All the other things can be details. Important details, things we have to deal with. But let these things be the business that we're engaged upon. Lord, let us be a people who seeks your kingdom and your righteousness, knowing that all these other things will be granted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.